You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Let's jump right in and take a look at verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 6 is sort of where we left off last week, but it says this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. If you remember, Paul begins talking about the children of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. Moses has led them out of the captivity of Egypt and Pharaoh, and and he starts talking about how Jesus was actually with them. Before Jesus ever existed as a man, Jesus was represented by the rock that Moses struck and water came out to provide drink for the children of Israel. So Jesus was with them in their wandering and in, their, in the wilderness there in the Old Testament story. But Paul says this again in verse 6. Those things took place as an example for us, and I've said it multiple times now, but the Old Testament is just this storybook of truths that come true in the New Testament through Jesus. So as you're reading through the Old Testament, it's one of those things, my friend here in town, Kyle, uh, is, one of, is a pastor at another church, and he, when he was in seminary, he actually got in trouble in his Old Testament uh, class because he kept taking every story in the Old Testament and relating it to Jesus. And his seminary professor was like, listen, Kyle, you can't turn every story in the Old Testament into a thing about Jesus. He's like, try me. Yes, I can. You know, everything in the Old Testament, as as funny as it may seem, has its ability and its way to find its way and connect its way to Jesus. Now, that may seem hard to do in things like the genealogies we've been reading through First Chronicles and the first 10 chapters of, of first nine chapters of First Chronicles is just names and lists of names. But even within that, there are these connections of the genealogy of Jesus and where Jesus came from and how Jesus fulfills all the roles of the temple service and the priesthood and the worship and all those and the sacrifices, all those things. So the Old Testament is this important uh are, are these important stories for us to read so that be, they become examples for us. And Paul says the example for us out of thinking about the children of Israel is so that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, this is a strange thing because the children of Israel were God's people. They were the ones that he called to himself, the one that he provided for. And there were miracles being done so that he could prove his power and his love for them. And yet what Paul says is that they had this desire for evil. And that's the warning for us is to not desire evil. Now, in the culture that we live in, that's a hard thing. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. I don't, don't turn there. I'll read it to you real quick. But Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. God is speaking through the prophet of Isaiah to the nation of Israel. And he says this very simple statement. He says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe, or warning, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here's why I mention that. The culture that we live in now has so taken what God has created and the goodness of God's creation and has simply just twisted it. And all the things that God has said are good, oftentimes now in our culture, people will go, that's old, that's old-fashioned, that's not good, that's not progressive. And the things that God says are evil, our culture oftentimes will twist and say, no, actually, this is what is good. And we'll see some of the examples of that as we move forward through here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so that's the warning for us, is to not desire evil as the children of Israel did, and this is what Paul says very specifically in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he begins to be very specific about what that idolatry looked like. Verse 7 says, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge, Paul says, in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. 
nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's the initial warning that Paul gives and says, as we look back at the history of Israel, the story of the children of Israel, here's the warning for us. Don't become idolaters. What idolatry is for us to understand that? Because again, idolatry back in the day in the Old Testament oftentimes took the form of little gods, little carved images, wooden or golden images that people would literally bow down and worship. They would give affection and pray to those gods. Okay, that's what an idol was. And so for us, the idea of idolatry is kind of a hard concept because no one's literally saying, hey, here's, here's this thing right here. I'm going to bow down to this and say, this is my idol and I'm going to worship it. That's not what we do technically. But here's the idea of idolatry. This is what we have to wrap our mind around. Idolatry is making a God out of anything that brings us comfort or gives us the illusion of control. If you study the idolatry of the Old Testament, all of the gods of the pagan people were always related to the comfort or the pleasure of the person. That's why there was so much sexual immorality that took place around the worship of idols. Or control. It was the idea of control. There would be prayers to specific idols and quote-unquote gods, lowercase g gods, that those gods would give prosperity or victory in battle, those kinds of things. So the warning for us to not be idolaters like the children of Israel is to say, don't make gods out of things like comfort and control. I'll talk more about that in just a, se in, in just a second. Paul quotes Exodus chapter 32 when he gives this warning. He says, don't be idolaters as some of the children of Israel were. As it was written, and he quotes uh, 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 Exodus 32 here, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What we see in the children of Israel is this assumption that because they had partaken of the sacraments of God, because God had called them to be his people, that they could go ahead then and take liberty in their behavior, and specifically behavior that drew them away from faithful devotion to the Lord. This was Israel's error. And I said two Sundays ago, and I've already mentioned tonight, that idolatry is rooted in one of two things. Idolatry of any kind is rooted either in pleasure or power. That's really how you can sort of define in your life, am I making an idol out of my car? Do I look to my car to be the thing that is pleasurable to me? And I spend all my time and my attention focusing on my car. I talked on Sunday about how like guitar, that's music. This is the thing for me. Do I idolize my guitar? Is this the thing I worry about and covet and give my attention to more than anything else? Is that what brings me pleasure? Or is my job or my role as a parent or as a husband or a wife, is that the thing that gives me the sense of power or control in my life? Is it finances? I feel like if I have money and I have finances, I'm somehow in control of my destiny. I'm in control of my life. And those things become idols. And they become idols because they, uh, they fulfill those areas of our life that God says... He's supposed to fulfill. God is actually the one who's supposed to bring us the most pleasure by giving us meaning in our life, by giving us direction in our life. And the truth is, is that God, in addition to giving us meaning and purpose and pleasure in our life, is the one who's in control, not us. And so anytime that we uh, find ourselves bending our affections towards something grounded here on earth that's not God, seeking pleasure out of those things other than God, they become to us idols. Now, the first indication here of what Paul talks about in terms of idol is pretty obvious. Exodus 32, you can mark it down, and I'll just sort of read it to you. <coughs> 
This is that classic story of Moses going up to the mountain to receive the the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he's gone for a long time, and the children of Israel are getting antsy, and they're sort of like, where's Moses? He's left us. And they tell Aaron, hey, listen, here's all of our golden earrings and our jewelry. You make us a god to worship. And so Aaron, although he protests a little bit, he takes all the gold, melts it down, and he forms this golden calf. And here's what happens in Exodus 32. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And then here's the quote, And they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And there's plenty more story to be told there, but the idea is this, that When the people were not being explicitly led by Moses, they very quickly turned aside from the instructions of the Lord and went after the things that brought them pleasure. The phrase there is that they rose up to play. And it becomes very obvious that what that means is that the people of God, Moses found the people of God in this sort of ecstatic orgy. I hate that word, but it's true. That's what it was, that they were worshiping a golden calf And they were using sexual immorality to worship this golden calf. And anytime that the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it means sexual behavior that falls outside of the order that God created. And the order that God created for sexual behavior is one man, one woman in marriage forever. That's it. That's the confines of the sexual relationship that God created. Anything outside of that is not right. It's idolatry. And so this is what Paul is teaching and giving the example of to not create idols in the world. And he uses the very specific uh, context of sexual immorality or pleasure. And so he says, we must not, in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 10, 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And then here's the shocking thing. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, some scholars sort of debate what this is in reference to, (coughs) speaking of perhaps just the ongoing battles and and conquests that were taking place in the nation of Israel as they were wandering through these foreign lands. Most conservative scholars would say that this was what the Lord was telling Moses. Get out of my way so that I can deal with the people who are in the nation of Israel here who are messing up my plans to make you a great nation. These people who so quickly turn away from instruction when they're not being watched like a hawk by Moses, God says, I need to get rid of them. They're evil and they're causing problems in my chosen people. Now, we'll talk about this in just a second, but that is a part of what Paul is talking about when he makes reference to the end of the ages. Right now, we see in the world around us just all kinds of turmoil in all kinds of ways. I just read an article about how the San Andreas Fault hasn't had a major earthquake in a while, and so there's these predictions about this major earthquake that's going to come. And anytime we speak about those things biblically, it starts to conjure these images of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 as the signs of the times, right? The signs of the ages and the, the, the nearness of Jesus' return to earth. And, and so part of that, we'll learn, is that there will be in the last days, Jesus says, a great falling away of people. People who even would have claimed to be Christians, called themselves churchgoers, but under persecution, under the temptation to give in to evil, 
will fall away from obedience to the Lord. One of the things that we have to caution ourselves about as we study the scripture and test ourselves, our own faith, our own behavior, is in asking ourselves the question, am I in the Lord? Is my identity rooted in Jesus or is my identity rooted in what Jesus can do for me? Or is my identity rooted in the pleasure that I receive by going to church? Is my identity rooted in the role that I have at church? Pleasure, power, comfort, control. See, even coming to church can become an idol. It's something that we have to be cautious about. You go, how can going to church be an idol? Well, going to church can become an idol if you think that going to church is the thing that gets you in good with God. Rather than understanding and living moment by moment, day by day, confessing to ourselves, confessing to the Lord, confessing to one another, listen, without Jesus, I'm nothing. Without Jesus, I just, there's nothing I have that's of any worth to God. And so as God destroys this 23,000 people in one day because of their sexual immorality, again, that's written down as an example for the Old Testament people, but as instruction for us in the New Testament church to be cautious about our behavior and to be very cautious about how we deal with these things of pleasure and power. Let's continue on in verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So first of all, Paul gives an example of this idolatry that takes the form of pleasure in the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, sexual immorality taking place, God having to destroy them because of that. That's the first example he gives of idolatry. The second example that he gives of idolatry is this, um, this idea of power. And, and here's what it says in verse 9 again. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This second example that Paul gives is a little bit more esoteric. It's not so uh, blatant and specific, but the issue at the root of it is power or control, and that's the idolatry that the children of Israel were dealing with in this sense. Now, We'll take a look at Numbers chapter 21 to show the example of what Paul is talking about here, these serpents and this grumbling and the destroyer, all these things. We'll take a look at Numbers 21. But the truth is, this issue probably more than anything else, believe it or not, I think perhaps even more than sexual immorality, is something that we're incredibly guilty of in the Western church. The Western church is guilty of something called the Western plausibility structure. And what that means is our Western culture has been appropriated by the church here in America that says, as long as I'm getting what I want out of it, then I'm okay. And, and it's because we live in an incredibly individualistic society. Our entire country is founded on the idea that each person is entitled to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's sort of our American dream that says this is what God has given to us, is this freedom that we have. And it's very individualistic. But here's the problem with that, is that the Bible doesn't know anything about that type of individualistic Christianity. And the first thought you might have is, well, wait a minute, I thought like Jesus is our personal savior, like he's my savior. Yes, that's true. Jesus is a personal savior. God is a personal God. He knows each of us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our head for those of us that have hair on our head. Like he knows those things. He's very personal in nature. Jesus died for each one of us. Our names individually are written in the Lamb's book of life. But you have to understand that all throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New, when it talks about God's people and salvation, it's talked about in a group. It's talked about in a collection of people, the nation of Israel as God's people, the church as the bride of Christ. Our faith and our salvation is individual, yes, 
Each one of us is forgiven of our sins. But remember that Jesus, it says in the New Testament that Jesus died for the church, for the entire body of Christ and how it is that we all fit together. Jesus died for the church so that the church could exist. And so our salvation is not just individualistic. It is both a community salvation and a covenantal salvation. It's the promise of God to his people. This is why the nation of Israel becomes such a big example for us because God deals with them not just as individuals, but as a whole group. The same is true for us as the church today. And that's why this should be relevant to us as we read it. Again, uh, Numbers chapter 21 is the reference here. <coughs> and it talks about these snakes. Let's take a look and see what it says in Numbers 21. Verse 4 says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What food are they talking about? The manna that God miraculously provided for them. Each morning they would wake up and it was like dew on the grass. They simply had to go out with their basket and collect enough for their meal that day. God provided this miraculous food, and they're complaining and saying, we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died and the people came to Moses and said we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us and so Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole meaning a brass image that he sets on this pole in fact the image that of this snake Surrounding the pole, you can see it on ambulances to this day. It's actually this sign for, for medical health and, and, and shows you where doctor's offices are. It actually comes from the Bible, this snake on a pole. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who has bit it, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent on the pole and live. This is what Paul is referring to back in 1 Corinthians 10, saying we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Remember that we're called, even Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that we're called as followers of Jesus to discipline ourselves in following after Jesus, to be patient to not grow weary in well-doing. Paul uses the example of an athlete and a soldier and a farmer who have to be patient and endure the trials that they go through to come out on the other end successful. And this is what the children of Israel were not doing. They wanted what they wanted and they wanted it now. They were being impatient in the way. Secondly, there in Numbers 21, the people were speaking against the leadership. They were speaking against Moses and Aaron. They were speaking against God himself and complaining, why did God bring us out here? And, and how, come, <coughs> how come he's given us this lousy bread to eat? We're tired of this bread. We don't want that. We want some other kind of bread. They were speaking against leadership and authority. When we have to remind ourselves, just like we did on Sunday, that we are called in a New Testament sense to pray for our leaders and rulers and those in authority over us. Not complain against them, but pray for them. Lift them up to the Lord. Encourage them in seeking God's wisdom and grace for the purpose of leadership. We're called to pray for leaders and rulers. So not only were the people impatient, they were speaking against the leaders, Moses. They were also speaking against God. And I think of any of those things, that's the greatest crime. That if we ever stop and, and, and feel as though we have the right to shake our fist at God or question God, 
we have to be very, very cautious when we get into that realm. I've had lots of conversations with people over the years, and whether it be that they've had to endure, you know, the premature death or the death of someone that they love and, and just the confusion of that, whether it be a tragic accident or an illness or just circumstances in life that are hard to deal with. Um, you know, oftentimes people have expressed their displeasure with God or their anger with God. And they'll oftentimes point to things like the Psalms, where we see David express his frustration at times and even perhaps anger. But I would challenge us to, to be cautious about how we enter into those types of expression of emotion. Because David never sat in his anger. He never sat in his disappointment. In fact, it, when he expressed those things, they were but for a moment, and then he typically repented of those things and said, no, God, you're in control. You're the one who decides things. And so to, so to speak against God is one of these things that, that we have to be very cautious about how we approach the Lord. We're told that in, in very uh, graphic and specific terms that God is an all-consuming fire. And if we think that we have the right to approach God and go, why did you do things this way? Right? Why, why did you allow this to happen? We can ask those questions, but we can ask them respectfully. We can ask them with fear and trembling. We cannot ask them with a sense of, God, you owe me an answer. I have this control over my little world, and God, you're messing with it. And that's what becomes idolatry, this idea of needing an answer. I have a friend who just cracks me up every time we talk. He, he, he'll mention things like, well, you know, God and I, we have this little agreement. I had a talk with God. And we have this little agreement. Listen, God doesn't make agreements with people. God tells people what they're going to do. We don't, we don't negotiate with God. It cracks me up. I always warn him. I said, buddy, anytime you say that, give me a heads up because I want to stand as far away from you as I can and wait for lightning to come down or some snake to run out and bite him because we don't get to negotiate with God. <clears throat> Remember that God had provided this miraculous food for the people. He'd given them water to drink. He gave them shade when they needed shade. He was helping them overcome the you know, giants in the land. I mean, all these things that are part of that story. We need to be cautious about how we think about control in our lives. And so that whether it be pleasure or control, we are warned not to make idols out of these things. Now in verse 11, back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That bronze serpent that Moses put on the staff, on the pole. Anybody who was bitten by a serpent, a fiery serpent, all they had to do was look up on that. You know, Jesus said of himself that just like Moses raised up that serpent in the wilderness so that the children of Israel could look upon it and be healed so the Son of Man, Jesus himself, would be lifted up, and that anybody who looked upon him would be healed as well. That's the lesson for us out of that story in Numbers chapter 21. That it, when we're bitten by sin, when, when we are dying because of our disobedience and our complaining against God, the cure for that is quite simply to look upon Jesus, who was pierced on our behalf, who died for our sins. Well, again, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our, our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Each generation of the church from the time of Jesus until right now has believed this very same thing that the end of the ages has come. Every subsequent generation from the time that Jesus ascended and the church was founded has looked around them at the world and, and the, the circumstances that they live in and go, how could it get any worse? This must be what Jesus is talking about when he says these bad things are going to happen before I come back. Paul had that thought. Paul lived that way. Paul lived with the expectation that Jesus was actually going to return in his lifetime. 
In Jesus' own ministry, his disciples would ask him in Matthew chapter 24, Lord, what will be the sign of these things, of the end of the age, and what will be the sign of your coming? They were asking Jesus with the anticipation that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom there in their lifetime. Now remember, they, the, the disciples thought purely in a militaristic sense. They were thinking Jesus was going to be this conquering king who rode in on a white horse into Jerusalem and defeated the Roman occupation and established his kingdom in that sense. And they were all sort of, you know, uh, elbowing for space next to Jesus to sort of be his, you know, uh, commanders of their armies and those kinds of things, right? They wanted to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. They were thinking in an earthly sense. They were expecting Jesus to establish his kingdom there and then. Obviously, Jesus didn't establish his physical kingdom then. He said, actually, the kingdom is among you. It's spiritual. My spirit is what binds you together. And this is where we experience in God's people, God's values, his purity and love and mercy and grace. It's within God's people. That's where we experience it. But Jesus did talk about the end of the age and what to expect in that time before he came back. Now, if every generation of the church has thought this way, the expectation that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom, it leads us to a question that says, how could all of those previous generations of Christians think that the end of all things had come and that Jesus was returning to establish his kingdom if things like the Antichrist wasn't present in the world? What about all the discussion of things like the Great Tribulation and the seven-year period of, of tribulation on earth? It's actually only a three-and-a-half-year period of tribulation on earth, 42 months. <clears throat> How could Christians of every generation Think that Jesus was coming back if we haven't seen those things happen. See, again, we think from a very individualistic perspective in our lives in America today. What's true is what the scripture says. In 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, I won't go there, but, but you could read it for yourself. 1 John chapter 4, John warns the church and says that the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist is yet already in the world. Back in the first century of the church, the spirit of the Antichrist has, was present even from that time forward. Look throughout history in every generation of the church and you can identify events that correlate to the things that Jesus said are going to happen before the end of the age. Take a look at Matthew 24 with me. We don't have a ton of time, but we'll sort of finish out here tonight. Matthew chapter 24. I want you to take a look at this and just start perhaps, you know, thinking about this subject in the way that Jesus speaks about it, not necessarily in the way that we think about it from a Western perspective or from a 2020 perspective. Although, like I've said before, it feels like the end of the age. But the truth is, is that it's felt like that from the very beginning of the church. And so all that to say, as we lead into this, as we read about what Jesus says in Matthew 24, understand this, from the time of Jesus until now, We've been living in the last days. That's sort of the phrase that's been used in the church for at least my generation of growing up. Hey, we're living in the last days. Jesus could come back at any time. That's entirely true. But that has been true and that has been the expectation of the church from the first century on. And here's why it's been the expectation of the church from the first century on. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20 in chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, meaning the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking three questions. The disciples are saying, hey, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Because that could po quite possibly for us good Jewish boys be the worst thing to ever happen, that the place of worship would be taken away from us. Secondly, what's going to be the sign of your coming? Okay, so they're correlating the destruction of the temple with Jesus' coming back to establish his kingdom. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They ask sort of three distinct questions. Jesus answers, quite simply, in two parts. Look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, this happened from the first generation of the church on. False Christs would come and try and deceive Christians and say, see, I'm the returned Christ. That's Satan play, Satan's playbook for, for all heresy and all deception throughout the history of the world. After the time of Jesus, Satan would enter into and deceive people and try and use the tactic of saying, I'm Jesus, I'm the second coming. All you have to think back to is some of the, even the recent events that we had of like um, David Koresh at, at, in Waco, Texas and what happened back there in the 90s, I think it was. He claimed to be the second coming of Jesus, leading his people. And what ends up happening? Destruction and death. Okay? This is what Jesus says is going to happen from the time that he leaves. People will come and say, I'm the Christ. They'll lead many astray. Verse 6. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. A lot of times Christians, when there's world conflict, they start going, here it is. This is the end of the world. Look at all these wars and look at all this conflict that's taking place. Look what's erupting in the Middle East. Look what's going on around Jerusalem. It's, this has got to be the end. Look at what Jesus says, though. Says, though, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. That stuff's going to increase. See that you're not alarmed, Jesus says. For this has to take place, but the end is not yet. And then he goes on and becomes more descriptive. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Yep, absolutely. We see those things happening in the world. Famines, earthquakes. Oftentimes when those things start happening on the global, on the global scale, Christians get freaked out. They go, here it is. Jesus is coming. But look at what Jesus says in verse 8. Matthew 24, 8. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Just like a woman who's going into labor. You have your Braxton Hicks contractions, right? Where you're at home and it's a week before the delivery due date. And oh, there's contractions and the husband goes, let's go, it's time. And she's like, calm down, we've got time, right? This is just the beginning of the labor. And then when labor actually happens, when the painful part actually kicks in, there's women who are in labor, God bless them for hours and hours and hours. It takes a long time to deliver a baby. Now I want you to hear, hear me say this. I'm not saying that we are, as Christians, are supposed to have an attitude of pushing off the return of Christ or the expectation of the return of Christ. It's just that we're not supposed to become alarmists. We're not supposed to look at world events. We're not supposed to hold a newspaper in one hand and our Bible in the other hand and go, see, look at the newspaper. That means that all this stuff is coming true right now. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And he goes on and, and, and offers some words that perhaps aren't very comforting, but are true. In verse 9, Matthew 24, 9, Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to, mark this word, tribulation, and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That may not feel comforting in the sense of, hey, that's the way I'm going to advertise inviting people to church. Hey, why don't you come to church and learn about Jesus so that the rest of the world can hate you and so that you can go through tribulation? That may not sound very enticing or comforting except for this. It puts us in the company and fellowship of Jesus. Jesus warned his disciples and said, listen, they hated me. They didn't like what I had to say. So because you're my disciples, you're my servants, they're going to hate you as well. He goes on in verse 10 and says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus says this is going to be a part of the destruction of the world as it goes further and further into sin, as we approach closer and closer to the end of the age. These are the things that are going to happen. These are the things that are going to take place. Those who once followed me are going to fall away. They come under persecution or they endure tribulation. They're going to go, it's not worth it. I'm actually not that in love with Jesus. And they're going to fall away. Hatred is going to increase for those who are followers of Jesus. False prophets will arise and lead people astray, tempting them with comfort and pleasure or power and control. 
And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. He continues on in verse 15, and this becomes the part where a lot of times Bible scholars and people who study these things sort of get caught up and, and, and people sort of start, um, and I say this in air quotes, but I say it respectfully, they start, quote unquote, studying prophecy. And what that typically means is kind of what I referred to earlier is that they sort of take, uh, you know, all the news websites, there's no newspapers anymore, I don't know why I said that, but, but all the news websites and all those things, and they start to try and interpret the Bible based on what they see in the news, in, in news reports of what's going on in the world, rather than reading their Bible and interpreting the things that are happening in the world. You get that nuance? Rather than just reading about what's happening in the world and trying to superimpose it on the Bible, we take what God's given us in Scripture and we superimpose it upon the world and go, this is how things are supposed to work. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the indication here is this is an event that has not occurred yet. And so those who are listening to Jesus talk might be possibly confused about what that might mean because it hasn't taken place yet. He says, when this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel takes place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I'll stop there. This correlates to a much deeper study that I don't have time to go into right now, and it starts to correlate to two things. Number one, the destruction of, of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, and a future event that still is to come that will signal the end of the age and the time that Jesus will be returning. This abomin abomination of desolation that's spoken of by the prophet Daniel, it, it corresponds to a larger prophecy that God gave to Daniel about the coming of Jesus, the cutting off of Jesus's life, but then the ultimate return of Jesus to come and redeem the world to himself and the events that would take place immediately preceding the return of Jesus. But what I want to take note of here as, as we move on just, just quickly here, take note of not only what Jesus says, but the way Paul talks about the end of the age in 1 Corinthians 10. Stay with me in Matthew 24. Just hang with me for just a second. He's talking about great tribulation. He's talking about how uh, in those days, if they had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. The sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then in verse 23, he says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. <clears throat> I want to make mention of that. Signs and wonders, oftentimes when we hear that, we think purely in the realm of the mystical or the miraculous. But I want you to consider that in our day and age, things like scientific discovery, things like psychological insight, are often treated in the same way that in ancient times, miraculous things like healings were treated. They're treated like signs and wonders. I, I, it's not that I hesitate. I don't want to be offensive to people, but here's the thing. For a long time, back in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, it was about horoscopes. It was about people saying, hey, let me do your chart. And, and what's your sign? Are you a Pisces or are you a Libra? What, are you a Capricorn? Well, here's what that means. You're, you're, the moon's in alignment with, I don't even know. I've never had my chart done. But it was astrology. <clears throat> that was the whole thing. There's been seasons of time where it was psychology. It was about tapping into the inner you. And that's going on right now in a big way with the Enneagram. 
Everybody now is all about the Enneagram and find out what your personality profile is based on the nine things and whatever your wing is and all these kinds of things. And it's this ancient thing that they rediscovered. No, it was an occultic tool that was developed in the 60s. And it was taken into the mystical realm by a man named Richard Rohr, who was a mystic Catholic. And the Enneagram became this quote-unquote tool that transversed both the New Age realm and the Christian realm. And people latched onto it to go, oh, that's going to help me understand who I am. The roots of the Enneagram are actually, and I, I know these words freak people out, the roots of the Enneagram are demonic. Just like astrology is demonic. Okay? These are things that when, when Jesus talks about signs and wonders, it's not just necessarily mystic, miraculous things that are going to draw people away. It could be the fact that science now claims to have answers for everything. We can look deep into the solar system and we understand where the, the roots of the beginning of time are and where mankind came from and the Big Bang and evolution and all these kinds of things. These are the kinds of signs and wonders that possibly lead people astray, even the elect, even Christians who believe upon Jesus. These are things that draw people away from Jesus. Now, I have friends who, who are deep into the Enneagram. And if they heard me say that, they would object and go, no, no, no. This is actually helping us understand our relationships. It actually helps us become who we are in God better. But the truth is, here's what happens, whether it's the Briggs-Myers test that was used throughout the 90s, whether it's the Enneagram now, whether it's the, the astrological signs that were used previous to that. What happens is that people start to define themselves by these things. They take their little personality test and all these kinds of things and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a three. And so here's all the things that are true about me being a three on the Enneagram. And rather than, than that actually spurring me on or, or helping me become uh, closer to the Lord, what it becomes is a crutch. And we say, oh, well, that's just how I am. I'm a three. See, it's on my list of personality traits. Or I'm a, I'm a Libra. That's uh, us Libras. That's just what we're like. Or I, I'm an extrovert, Briggs-Meyer. I'm an extrovert. That's just kind of how I am. And we, t and we miss the one component that we are called to consider in our life more than anything. That if we are in Christ, we're a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. In Jesus, everything that quote-unquote defines us as a three or a Libra or an extrovert, that stuff doesn't matter. It may be a part of who we are in the human sense in our flesh, but in Christ, we're a completely new creation. The things that are sinful in us, the things that are deficits in our personalities, they can be won over by Jesus. They can be subdued by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so those things cannot define us. And it's just a warning for us to be aware that Jesus talks about things like signs and wonders that can lead people astray, even the elect. Pardon me. Let me finish this up. Verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. In verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will far fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I said that they asked three questions that Jesus answered in two parts. Jesus answered in two parts from verses oh, 04 through about verse 25 or 26. Jesus answered the first part. He says, what are going to be the signs of these things? What, when will these things be? Right? What, what, when are these things going to be? When's the destruction of the temple? When is the end of all these things coming? And Jesus gives all these examples of what it's going to be like. Here's what that correlates to. Every age of the church since the time of Christ is representative in that, including the abomination of desolation, 
which took place in AD 70, when the Romans came in and desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, slaughtered a pig, sprayed its blood around, worshipped uh, pagan idols in that place of worship in Jerusalem. At that time, because of what Jesus said here in Matthew 24, the Christians in Jerusalem, when they knew that the Romans were coming to decimate the city, they did what Jesus said. They fled to the hills. They took off and left the city of Jerusalem. The Jews, who didn't believe upon Jesus, didn't, and many were slaughtered. The point is to say this. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the end of the ages have come upon us, the end of the ages have come upon us from the time of Jesus until now. We're in the last days now. They were in the last days then. These are all things that are going to continue happening until the culmination of Jesus coming back in his second return. That's where in the beginning of, uh, well, verses 26, and then really at verse 29, that's where Jesus answers that second question. What is going to be the sign of his coming? When is he going to come back? After all of those things occur. Now, here's the thing. Because we're told that the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, uh, 1 John chapter 4 tells us, and because we see all of these events taking place throughout the history of the world, people being deceived, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. All of these have taken place throughout the history of the world. What we see now is nothing else specifically that has to occur before Jesus comes back. That's why we can say that even in these last days, like the church previous, we're expectant. We can say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. All of these things have occurred up till verse 26 or so in Matthew 24. And now, quite simply, we're waiting for Jesus just to come back and establish and, and collect the, the elect, those who are of God from the four winds. And, and that's what Jesus says in verse 36. Again, Matthew 24, look at verse 36. Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Meaning, there's warnings. There's, there's a call to repent, and yet the, there's people who are just going to ignore that. And the coming of Jesus is going to come, like he said, like a flash of lightning when people don't expect it. And yet, look at what Jesus says. Verse 43, or verse 42, after he talks about, like the days of Noah, they're going to be just living life and thinking everything's great, and then all of a sudden the flood's going to come and sweep them away. Two men, are gonna, two men are in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the men, one mill, one will be taken and one left. That's not, listen, listen, that's not the rapture. Can I help you understand that? When it says that one's taken and one's left, it's not this secret rapture of Jesus where Jesus is rapturing people out of the world. That's not what he's talking about. Look at the context. He's talking about as in the days of Noah, where there are people just going about their business and all of a sudden, one is taken and one's left. In the days of Noah, who were the people that were taken? It was the people who were washed away by the flood. That's who was taken. Those who were left were those who were Noah and his wife and his sons and his son's wives who were preserved in the ark. Those who were taken were the ones that were swept away. That's the context of what Jesus is talking about. Now, he says in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, in the discussion of the last days, end times, how things are going to go down immediately preceding Jesus' return to, to bring with him the new heavens and the new earth to establish the new Jerusalem. I need you to understand two things. Number one, 
Heaven is not a faraway place. It's not someplace that when we die, we go to away from this earth. Right now, there is some spiritual realm that we live in with the Lord that when our loved ones are gone, when they pass away from this earth, to be absent from the flesh, the Bible says, is to be present with the Lord. They're with the Lord. But at the return of Christ, at the renewal and the redemption of this earth, this world that God has created, think back to the Garden of Eden. This is actually where God wants to dwell with us. Jesus is the linchpin. He's the connector between heaven and earth. And he is going to bring heaven, his kingdom, his perfection back here to earth. And this earth is going to be renewed in a way that it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be back to where we walk with God in the cool of the day, where there's peace and perfection here, this place, not some faraway floaty cloud disembodied place. We're going to be given new bodies like Jesus's body after he resurrected. This is where heaven is going to be, but without sin, with the light of Christ illuminating everything. That's the first thing to understand when we think about that. The other thing we have to think about is this. What Jesus talks about in regard to his coming and the imminence of it, which means the fact that it could happen at any point. Jesus does not talk about, Paul does not talk about, even John the Apostle in the Revelation does not talk about figuring out who the Antichrist is. They don't talk about figuring out the timeline of the days of tribulation and when the abomination of desolation is going to take place and how many more days until Jesus comes back. That's not what the discussion is biblically about the return of Christ. The discussion from Jesus' own mouth is this, to be found faithful doing the things that Jesus instructed us to do. As we think about the last days, the end times, the end of the world, the destruction of those who have rejected Christ, all of those things, it's in the context of are we doing what Jesus has told us to do? Are we the faithful servant? Are we ready and watching and expecting our Lord to return? He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? Look, to give them their food at the proper time. Are we giving people food? Are we giving them the bread of life? Are we doing the work that Jesus commanded us to do to make disciples? That's what Jesus says. Pray that you be found doing the faithful things, not, not be the wicked servant who says, ah, you know, there's not enough wars and rumors of wars yet. No, I have time. There's not enough earthquakes. No, we haven't seen the abomination of desolation take place yet. No, no, no. Be found faithful at all times because you just don't know when Jesus is going to return. The truth is this. The Bible in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 that says that the return of Jesus is our blessed hope. Our hope isn't in anything other than the return of Jesus. That's why Paul warns against idolatry. Our hope cannot be in things to save us that give us pleasure. Our hope can't be in the illusion of control or power that we might have and think that that's going to be the thing that makes us secure or safe. Our hope, our blessed hope, is the return of Jesus. Mark this as well. Our blessed hope is not the expectation of escape from persecution or tribulation. Jesus says you're going to go through it. You have to be ready for it. And you need to be found faithful, and the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. Escape is not our blessed hope. Jesus' is appearing is our blessed hope. The promise is that God will protect and sustain us by his grace through persecution and tribulation. Now, I didn't get nearly as far as I wanted to through chapter 10, but I think that's an important thing for us to discuss in light of the things that we see in the world around us. Um, and I'll just finish with this. I've got great friends who love the topic of eschatology or the study of the things of the end. They love the study of prophecy and, and, and understanding what God says about the things of the end of the world. 
But the caution for us in anything as we study the scripture is to make sure, as I've said before, that we balance all things. That we make sure that while we are aware and look for the coming of Jesus and we understand what Jesus says about the signs of the times of surrounding his coming, that we not lose the thread of the Great Commission through all of that. I have a good friend up in, up in Portland who teaches, and he's a huge prophecy buff, and he does prophecy updates, and he's a wonderful Bible teacher. I learned how to teach the Bible from him, basically. And the thing that I so appreciate, even as he talks about prophecy and these end times things, is that he says, listen, the point isn't to figure out the times and the dates about when Jesus is coming. It's not about looking at the signs and wonders. He says it's about understanding the need to be faithful to the mission that Jesus has given us. And so the caution in these things is don't get caught up. And there's plenty of guys who get caught up in these things and they say, oh, you know, Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. But all they spend their time doing is trying to figure out the day or the hour. We have to be cautious about that <clears throat> because what it stops us from doing oftentimes is fulfilling the mission of preaching the gospel, giving people bread, the food that God called us to give to them. So with that, Father, we do want to be people who 